right, good morning again. It is that time to dig in the Word of God. So as you settle down, we're going to be headed to the book of Acts again, chapter 18, and we are going to transition from the second missionary journey, which is going to come to a close today, and we're going to start the, really just the very beginning of the third missionary journey there. And in the transition, there's a lot of little things to learn. Let's pray, Father God, and in these few verses, God, just this practical way of going from Greece back to Syria and all the little practical details, there's a lot of truth to be had. We pray for open hearts to have wisdom to not just hear uh, but to put into practice, to be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I've been saying, the first European country, uh, speaking in modern day terms, to receive the gospel was, of course, Greece. And uh, from there, and exclusively Greece, but from there, of course, the gospel will spread to other European nations. And so that's what we've been seeing here in the book of Acts, which is of course, the record of church history, Christianity for the first 30 years, how things got up and running. And so uh, once again to the map and this uh, very powerful lightsaber here. So they went from uh, about a year here, right? And then uh, a year and a half in Corinth where we are today. But uh, the, the time in Greece started at up north with Philippi, then it went down to Thessalonica following the map there, then down to Athens where it wasn't very fruitful, but then to Corinth where the gospel came to a bunch of people living in, at that time they called it Sin City there, and so boom, there was an explosion, transformed lives. And so today the passage goes from it's time to leave uh, Greece uh, for home which is the sending churches in uh, Syria. And so we're going to leave Greece and then get to Ephesus where they're going to drop uh, Aquila and Priscilla, Paul's new BFFs there. Uh, they're going to be friends for a lifetime and partners there. They stay and they're the ones who plant the church at Ephesus really. And Paul will continue onward and uh, get down to Caesarea. He's going to make a stop and see uh, the mother church as it were and then head back to the sending church where he spends some time and then he's going to start of the third missionary journey happens in our passage as well when he goes uh, backpacking back up again to revisit the churches there in the Galatia area. So now that you're situated here, it's amazing. We're in Corinth, just so you know, the last place uh, before he leaves the continent and the country. Uh, but Corinth, what an amazing thing. The least likely people to become Christians because they were the most heinous of all sinners, and everybody knew them. And he made a list of some of their lifestyles, didn't he? When he wrote to them that first uh, God-breathed letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and uh, following. And then by the time he gets to chapter 6, he says, man, look at you guys. God has changed your lives. You were sexually immoral like nobody else in the world. You were greedy. You were idolaters. You were drunks. 
but you were washed. You heard the gospel. You believed. The Holy Spirit sanctified you. That means to set you apart out of the world, out of the, the way that leads to death and consecrated to God for his good purposes uh, because the gospel is not a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. When you say yes to the gospel, there's a supernatural thing that happens. That the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, quote, raises us to new life. And so that's what was going on there in Corinth. So after a year and a half, it's time to say yasu. Yasu in Greek is bye-bye, right? What I really find funny is the short way to say bye is yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like we would say, you know, are you kidding me? And you go, yeah, <laughs> you know. So that's an easy way to remember how to say bye the next time you're in Athens. <laughs> so they're gonna say yasu, goodbye. And uh, last we heard for the context, and then we pick right back up is there was a serious attack launched by the synagogue that became very insanely jealous of what was going on in the, the, the church right next door. And so they, they launched a lawsuit against Paul, serious one, and against the church. Um, but uh, the, their case got laughed out of court, and they got tossed out of court and then beat up. I mean, not by the Christians, but by the crowd who were uh, not real fans of the local synagogue anyway. And so right on the heels of that experience comes verse 18. After that happened, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Sencrea uh, because of a vow he had taken. Let's pause there. So we're going to get through to the end of the chapter and get all the way to the home uh, sending church area there in Antioch. But uh, surprising at how many little truths that we'll see along the way. And so time for furlough. And if you're taking notes, a vow. Paul offers thanks to God. We're going to talk about that now. So it's time to make a thousand mile journey. Uh, back in those days, that's a big challenge and a few stops along the way, as you've been seeing. And uh, so the verse starts out, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Uh, Luke tells us that for a reason. Well, it comes on the heels of the big persecution. And so uh, even if Paul wanted to go on from then, uh, he, he probably wouldn't have. He probably would have stayed. Why? He stayed on because it may have looked like uh, their intimidation tactics had worked. And so that they were fleeing for their lives because they're so afraid. You know, well, that's not going to happen because Paul had uh, been given a vision and the Lord spoke to him and said, uh, There's a, I'm going to protect you while you're here in Corinth. So be encouraged. So encouraged by the vision and the favorable verdict of the court, he stayed on in Corinth for some time. And so he's going to leave the brothers behind. It needs a comment here. This is the way New Testament church and evangelism worked. And it's the protocol, biblically. Uh, they'd go in, they'd evangelize, and then it would be obvious God would put his hand on certain men and give them special 
knowledge and understanding of the scriptures and special abilities to preach and to teach and special character qualities, uh, character qualities that would qualify them for ministry. First Timothy 3, a list, 15 qualities, and, for, and Titus chapter 1. And so God would make it obvious, I'm calling this guy to full-time ministry. And they would mentor them and vet them and, and, and uh, raise them up. And then so he, as he's waving goodbye in the rearview mirror is the church of Corinth and the sweet dear pastors that he's leaving behind to pastor those people. That's what happened, in fact, in um, chapter 14, verse 23, uh, it tells us the apostles appointed elders in every church. And in Titus it says they did so in every city. So in order to have a church, you've got to have a God-called leader. You've got to have things like pastors. You've got to have deacons. It's got to look like a church to be a church. Otherwise, you have a, a nice group of Christians meeting uh, there, but I wouldn't call it a church per se. And so, uh, yeah, so now before he gets on the boat, he, he gets a haircut, but it's no normal haircut. It is uh, as connected to having taken a vow. So what's going on? Well, and Paul's a Jew, and Jewish customs are ingrained in him, and Jews like to take vows. Now, there's no New Testament command for Christians to take vows, nor is there an Old Testament command. Uh, they're described vows in the Old Testament, but they're voluntary. Their vows would be different. There's all kinds of vows. I mean, think of it. There's the, and we see them in the Old Testament general vows that we can understand that are born out of need or desperation. And, and we understand that it's like, get me out of this trouble and I'll do X, Y, and Z, God. Right? So anybody can relate to that. I know. And uh, uh, Jacob did that. If you take care of me, you provide all my needs. Genesis 33. Then I'll give you one-tenth of everything. And I could just hear God go, what? Whoa. <laughs> One tenth of everything? Oh, I, yeah. So I would say, <laughs> I know we're crazy. We're crazy. Just, just let's just admit what everybody knows. And then there's, then there's the quid pro quo, right? It's that same idea. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you. But nothing like getting into serious trouble to start your lips making the promises, as the psalmist says. Listen, God, I will enter your sanctuary with my offering. I will fulfill those vows to you. The vows that my lips promised when uh, my mouth spoke in distress. You see, we make the vow in distress, and then God expects us to fulfill. Uh, like Jonah the prophet, he made a vow, didn't he? But it took <laughs> an ordeal to, to, to get it out of him. I mean... He was rebelling, you know, the prophet of old. God wanted him to go preach the good news to sinners, which he didn't want to do because he thought, oh, no, they might listen and get saved, and we can't have that. <laughs> so he didn't want to go, and, and so uh, God uh, helped him uh, by sending uh, a whale and in the midst of seaweed wrapping around his head and uh, gasping for every breath, uh, he says, okay, okay, from the belly. Okay, okay, what I have vowed, I'll make good. I'll make good. And, and when he was ejected from his terrible ordeal, 
he did. He made the promise good and he went to Nineveh. Paul's vows more closely resembled with what is called a Nazarite vow. Let me throw something in for free here. Nazarite is a different word than Nazareth or Nazarene. Jesus was a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. It has nothing to do with the Nazarite vow, which would have mean his hair would be long. Since he's not a Nazarite, but a Nazarene, the Renaissance painters didn't read their Bible really closely and painted him with long flowing hair. Sorry, first century Jewish men cut their hair like we do at the ears. Just so you know. And I throw that in for free. (laughs) A Nazarite. How do we know he wasn't a Nazarite? Because he drank wine. And Nazarite didn't drink wine. So there you go. Uh, he's just from Nazar. Nazir in the Hebrew, to separate. So a, a, a Nazarite vow from the verb to Nazir means to separate yourself. And that's exactly what Numbers chapter 6 with a Nazarite vow, which is probably related to what Paul is doing here, uh, is talking about. A season where you decide... I want to render some service to God or give him some gifts or do something uh, to kind of consecrate myself over to him, draw near kind of thing and special devotion. And that's what was going on here. And now the reason uh, that the hair would be grown is very practical uh, to start to mark the time. I'm starting now, no shaving. So every time there was scruff and and the beard's growing, it's just a practical reminder, a vow has been started and a vow is still going on until it's cut. And so there before you, the hair marking the beginning, the middle, and the end of your, your time because it was temporary. Now, why would Paul have put himself under a vow? Uh, that's a good question. It doesn't say why, but some scholars have floated some reasons that I really like, and it makes a lot of sense. So when he's in a lot of trouble, he's fearing. He's even afraid to speak because of the intimidation there in Corinth. What happens? God appears to him in a vision and says, listen, stop being afraid. Continue to speak. Do not be silent. Because I'm with you, and there's a lot of people that belong to me that will be saved through your ministry here. So keep on talking. Ah, I vow, Lord, to not be afraid anymore. I promise here and now to keep on speaking and not be silent. You see, there it is. And so from that moment, possibly, until he's now, he's done with Corinth. He's saying goodbye. So the period of time of special protection and the vow to keep on speaking and not being afraid there in Corinth is over. So he has a prayer service. He goes to a Jewish barber and boom, he's ready to step on board. They have a little prayer time. It was probably very beautiful. And so off they go. Verse 19. Should Christians take vows? Answer. Only if you intend on keeping them. Because, as King Solomon said, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow to God. 
There you go. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. I'm glad I caught that. Verse 19. So they arrive at Ephesus. Now they're on the continent of Asia, where in modern-day Turkey, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. You'll recall that they were tent makers. They employed Paul. Paul was working for them. And then as John Corson put it, he went from working for them to working on them. And they become Christians and lifelong uh, partners in the gospel. Uh, they're going to plant a church or start one in Ephesus. Now, while they're getting settled, he himself goes into the synagogue in Ephesus. Of course, he can't resist and reason with the Jews. But look at this. When they ask him to spend more time with them, he declined. What? But as he left, he said, hey, I'll come back, I promise, if it's God's will. Then he set sail uh, from Ephesus. He went on the journey. Let's we pause there. We move note takers from a vow uh, to a debate. Well, it's a quick one because he's not wanting to hang around. So they're in Turkey there, the capital city, more about that place when Paul comes. And so I guess the intent was Priscilla and Aquila to stay and set up their home and their business as leather workers there in Ephesus and start seed planting and preparing for when Paul would come back if it was God's will. And it will be God's will. He will come back to Ephesus as uh, we all know. Now, Paul is abiding his time in his favorite place of all around his fellow Hebrews. So he goes into, and this is a very pagan city, but inside those four walls, as I like to say, they're Jews, and they speak Hebrew, and they read the Old Testament, and so he's quite at home, and he's ready to show them on every scroll where the Messiah is prophesied there uh, for them to come to faith. Well, what's so unbelievable about this is they ask him to stay on and spend time with them, and he says no. Okay, it's almost hard to believe because uh, it's the first time he's leaving a synagogue on his own accord. <laughs> Usually he's, he's shown the door. Usually he wants to stay and they want him to go. Now they want him to stay and he wants to go. So what's up with that? Things are going well. These are his kinsmen. These are his people. This is his heart. This is the reason this guy gets out of bed in the morning. And they say, we're open, we're hungry, we're Jews, show us more. And he says, no, I can't do it. Why? He doesn't believe that it's God's timing. He doesn't sense it's God's will for him to stay at that moment. And for Paul, that's everything. Listen, it doesn't matter to Paul or any dedicated Christian how good or right or biblical a thing is. If a Christian is lacking that confirmation of peace in their heart, that they're unsettled, and it just, it's just not clicking, then they don't do it. They, no matter how fantastic or logical or, or what. So he declines, but but... But how does he determine that? Because isn't that the big ticket item? I read this, that the number one issue that Christians struggle with is what they say in a Gallup poll. The number one frequent most reason that they seek pastoral counsel. How can I discern God's will 
in this matter here. So I have an option. I have a choice. I'm at a fork in the road. Uh, pros and cons, pros and cons. <laughs> ah, what, how can I find out God's will? God's will for our lives is fairly simple in a general sense. Because on every page we have the do's and don'ts. And as you do or don't do, uh, you will in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So in a very real sense, that if you didn't know what to do from this day forward, but you just did things like abstain from sin, be other-centered, live a self-controlled life, shine the light, the gospel, be thankful, uh, do everything without complaining, keep a tight rein on your tongue, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, seek God's kingdom first, forgive those who have sinned against you. See, there's a million of those, positives and negatives. I firmly believe that as we just live the Christian life and do those things today in everything where they're concerned, that God's will for us will just naturally unfold. But let's talk about, should I stay or should I go? Should we continue dating or break up or take the next step toward marriage? How do I know? I've been offered two jobs, one here, one in the Bay Area. Not me personally, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> one in the Bay Area, you know, there's commuting involved and gas prices, but there's an opportunity and double the pay. But it, the other one is right here, pros and cons, right? How do I know? Well, let me say this. There are three helpful things in discerning God's will. Really quick. These three things for my entire Christian life have been so helpful, and it happens a lot. Two good things, what do I do? Or, or no two good things, I just don't know what to do right here. Well, number one, prayer. Number two, the scriptures. And number three, a surrendered life. Number one, prayerfulness. Just when you're in a season of not knowing what God's will is, um, it, it, you, you just have to keep bombarding heaven. You're prayerful all day long. You know when Paul says pray without ceasing? He doesn't mean you keep <laughs> praying literally, but you're constantly kind of have it smoldering on the back uh, burner kind of thing where you're constantly, God, God, help me here. And, and Jeremiah 33, 3 says, hey, Call to me, I'll answer you. And I'll show you stuff that you couldn't possibly know without me. So he honors us when we're just saying, God, God, please, I don't want to go A, if it's really supposed to be B, please show me. And so you're prayerful and, and God just honors you. You know, it's uh, guidance to a pilot is pretty important. Air traffic control, you take the voice out of his ear, boom, recipe for disaster, right? And so... We're listening, and he's speaking, and he promises this. Look, I know who you are, and you know me. My sheep know me, and I call them by name. There's this way that God has of nudging us and arranging things so that we know prayerfulness. Number two, the scriptures. I have been blown away by, I mean, finding the answer in the scriptures that has nothing to do with the thing. So just to be more involved in the word of God during your time of seeking. And so I'll be reading a verse that has nothing to do 
with the thing I'm asking God about, but boom, that's the answer. And I just know how he connects it together. It's just amazing how God can do that. And only you know. I mean, he knows how to get his uh, will into your head. And finally, the fully surrendered life. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I think I prayed this. You know, he says, in view of God's mercies, the, the best thing we could do is to yield the reins of our lives to him completely. Put ourselves in the offering box. God, I have no agenda. I've stopped. I've taken my hands off the wheel, which makes perfect sense. Then Paul says, when you yield your life totally and your mind is renewed and you're not conforming to the way the world does business, he says, then you will know what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. There it is. Doesn't that make sense? How, how If you're controlling uh, for self and comfort and convenience and more money and better opportunity, and, uh, duh, how, how would you ever? God, guide me. Oh, the Lord's showing me right now, you know, <laughs> because you want it so bad. No, no, no. Even if he chooses B when you hoped it was A, you want B. You really do. You really do, because God knows stuff that we don't know. Amen. Those are the three things. And because Paul was prayerful and in the word and fully surrendered, he knew, do not stay here even if they beg you. Verse 22. When they landed at Caesarea, they're in the promised land. He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, even though we would all say, as we all know, we would go up to Syria from its north, right? But from God's point of view, uh, Jerusalem is the capital of the world. And anytime you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. And anytime you go to Jerusalem from any point in the world, you're going up. So that's his way of honoring his city of Jerusalem. And so uh, after, and Caesarea, we'll, we'll all be standing in that port on in April, the end of April, 14 spots left, just saying. <laughs> after spending some time in Antioch, all right, here's the third missionary journey right here. He doesn't wait, uh, waste any time. Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Time to show you another map, people. Not that one. This one. Boom. Map. <laughs> the second map. Yeah. All right. So he's home now. He's rested up. And out he goes, back up to see his pals in Galatia. He's headed to Ephesus. He may not even know it yet, but he's going to Ephesus, right? And then he's going to retrace his steps, go back to Greece, see all the, the, his friends there, come back this way. And that's all in the, all the chapters to come. When he gets here, it's over. All three missionary journeys are done because he gets arrested. And not, he's not going to be martyred yet. But for two years, he spends in Caesarea in prison, and then he gets an all-expense-paid trip to Rome because he becomes a prisoner, <laughs> and he's shipped on a prison ship <laughs> all the way to Rome. And so those are the chapters that await us. But, you know, I just have one remark. I mean, he goes home. He's not there for, he's there for some time. It turns out it's like six, eight months. Um, he's resting. 
He's reconnecting. He's handling all the problems that happened in the three years he hadn't been there because he's a founding pastor there. Uh, but you know what? Maybe somebody say, Paul, dude, come on. Thousands and thousands of miles, thousands and thousands of shekels. Man, come on, give it a rest. And he'll, he would say, we can rest in heaven. There are souls on the line. And so, yeah, so uh, they're off the missionary journey, and he's got some people with him. Now, there's a meanwhile. Now we're going to get a paragraph that's like a meanwhile. So Paul's in Galatia. He doesn't know he's headed to Ephesus, but he'll get there. But So we flash back now to Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are there, and, and somebody comes on the scene that is important to the New Testament, and we need to meet him in the meanwhile. So here we go. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, Egypt, it's a number two city in the then known world, came to Ephesus, which is a quite a grand city, but nothing like Alexandria. He was a learned man, and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he saved, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, which is kind of an odd way of saying this, uh, because he only knew the baptism of John. So he talked about Jesus accurately, considering he only knew about the baptism, baptism of John. Now, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue where Priscilla and Aquila hear him, it's sort of their fellowship, he comes in and he's doing a great job they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. <laughs> now that could be a recipe for disaster. So we're going to talk about being teachable and uh, humility and humbleness and how God is going to work through this beautiful Christian couple here. So let's meet the new guy in town. He's soon going to be BFFs with co-worker Paul. He's got a lot in common with Paul. They're both brainiacs, first of all. They're both geniuses, and uh, they're both Jews. And they both can speak powerfully. Um, and uh, uh, Apollos is going to go off to Corinth, where he's going to do a lot of pastoring, so much so that he sort of becomes a rival to Paul. You remember the Corinthians, they're immature, and they uh, are rebuked by Paul saying, what, what is this I hear in a letter? He goes, I know you love uh, Apollos and you love me, but you know some of you are saying, I prefer Pastor Paul. Well, I prefer Pastor Apollos. Well, I prefer Pastor Peter. So we know Peter had visited. And then others, the more spiritual types say, well, I'm not pastored by any man. I prefer being pastored by Christ. So they were the hardest ones of all, just saying. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, he goes, listen, guys, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he goes, Apollos <clears throat> and Paul, we're just co-workers. Uh, Apollos, uh, I planted the seed, Apollos watered the garden, but God made it grow. So neither the waterer or the planter, they're nobody. It's God who makes the seed grow. So this is the Apollos who's uh, mighty in the scriptures. <laughs> says your text here. Let's talk about him now. He's ethnically Jewish. We already covered that. There were uh, a third of Alexandria's population were Jewish. 
which is interesting. Alexandria was amazing, <clears throat> was known as the grand, for its grand universities and this library that had 700,000 volumes in it, well-known scholars and philosophers. Alexandria, you just said you're from Alexandria, but the way you, you could tell, the way he opened his mouth and spoke, the way he carried himself. Uh, when, when it says he was learned, that word is packed in the Greek. I looked it up, and it, and it says that he is skilled in literature and the arts, especially versed in history and antiquities. Now, antiquities is funny because we consider them the ancient world, but back in the ancient times, they had ancient times that they studied, you see. And so this guy was really smart, intellectually gifted, well-trained academically, <clears throat> and a masterful speaker. This is important to realize as he has got a blind spot and two lay people who work with leathers, leather workers who um, not have a formal education. God is going to ask them to take him aside to correct him to give him some constructive pointers in his preaching. Yeah, recipe for trouble sometimes, right? So, yeah, more, more impressive than him being so well-trained academically is his, quote, thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He was Jewish and was raised um, on those verses. He knows his Bible inside and out. So he's a force to reckon with because he's, he's smart as a whip, you know, and he's been trained all the way. In fact, the word uh, learned has the word letters in it. It means to have letters after your name. So he has advanced degrees. But what's cool is he's a brother in the Lord. Somewhere along the line, maybe in his hometown, uh, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So now he's using all of that for the glory of God, which is what you're good at and been trained in. Oftentimes, God will just flip it when you, be, when you come to him. <clears throat> and now, instead of just building houses for people and money, you're building houses for homeless people. And maybe you take a missions trip. And maybe just because you're a really good dentist here, that you become a volunteer in uh, Nigeria for a season. You see, uh, no longer will you be just fishing for fish, Peter. You're going to be fishing for men's souls. He has a redemptive way. And now Apollos is just like a tornado for Jesus, right? But, you know, there's a glitch. And it's awkward. He preached about Jesus accurately, considering he was only familiar with John the Baptist. Wow. So what's going on here? He's got Jesus straight, but there's something missing in his messages and a lack in his understanding of the gospel. Husband and wife... They hear him, they see it's missing, and they feel like it's their responsibility to correct him and to fill him in. Awkward, right? It could be awkward. Uh, here's a guy, the most educated guy in the room. Uh, he's eloquent. Uh, he knows his Bible better than they do, you know, uh, but he's obviously missing something important, and it's preaching, and so they feel like it's their responsibility. And I mean, it's kind of like maybe the nurse practitioner having to give some advice to her boss, the surgeon, you know, who employs her, or the rookie giving pointers to valid pointers 
a good rookie who's talented in his own right, but he's a rookie. And he sees something in a more seasoned, talented player. And he's going to be the one to say, hey, man, I noticed something about your swing. And I, I think you just got to correct it a little bit. I think you'll be hitting a lot better. That is hard to take. So I think there's some intimidation. I think they have to have a plan. So maybe Priscilla says to Aquila, honey, you're a man. You take Mr. Alexandria out and tell him where he needs to improve. He'll, he'll receive it better from a guy. And he says, sugar muffin, listen. <laughs> you didn't know that? Yeah, that's how they were. Sugar muffin, listen up. I'm a leather worker. He went to Harvard. You know, I don't think I'm the right guy. Where's Paul? Where's Paul? We need Paul. You know, and besides, honey, your name comes before mine in the Bible. So, <laughs> so maybe you should take the lead because apparently that's the way it is. So they say, hey, let's just do it together. Now, commentators suggest that Apollos has, has got a warm demeanor about him, that he's gentle and friendly, and it, he makes, he's approachable. So uh, check for him there. Now, God has put it on their heart to do something uncomfortable. And so they rise to the occasion with Christian love, tact, and diplomacy. And you do not see a lot of tact and diplomacy among Christians today. You just don't see it. All right. I mean, people just, <laughs> just lacking it, you know. So they decide not to corner him in the foyer and embarrass him in front of a lot of other people, you know? <laughs> this just reminded me, and it just popped into my head, There's, there was a young man who attended the services, and uh, one day he came up to me after service, and he said, Pastor, you do this thing. He goes, um, instead of Romans 5.8, you say Romans 8.5. You get it backwards. And I said, oh, well, I'll never do that again. And then he says, now listen, since you do it once in a while, would you like me to stand up <laughs> while you're preaching and correct you and just let everybody know? It'll save them from, you know, turning to the wrong chapter. And I said, you know what? I don't think so. <laughs> Not this time, but chicken again. Maybe, yeah, no, you know. So uh, she says, let's invite him over. I'll make the brisket that you love. By the way, brisket is a Jewish thing uh, and, and an American thing too, but Jews love brisket for some reason. And uh, in the comfy and privacy of our home, maybe afterwards over some coffee, uh, we will, Turkish coffee, hello, they're in Turkey. Uh, we, will, <laughs> we will look for an opportunity, if God provides it, to just say, hey, we love your message but all right so um now so they're rising to the occasion what about uh, mr alexandria he's gonna need some humility and a humble heart to receive uh the correction right and so now we are not talking about unfounded criticism that comes from some silly self-righteous person who loves to point out the faults in others no we don't open to that we shield ourselves from that, uh, you know, contentious people. Avoid them. That's what the Bible says to do. But when you consider the source and you know this is a reputable person who loves me, loves the gospel, 
Well, it's time to cool our jets and, and say, okay, calm down, Mr. Defensive. You know, just calm down and let them talk because of who they are. Maybe it's something good. Maybe it's something needful, you know. And, and that's what's going on. It's so important, right? That's why the Bible says, and I'm quoting the Bible, so don't correct me. Um, <laughs> it says, he who hates correction is stupid. That's why I said don't correct me, because stupid, we don't usually use that word, but it's in the NIV, and it's in a lot of translations. Why is it stupid to hate being corrected and get all defensive and hurt and bent out of shape and take it as a personal slam? Because you're forfeiting by your bad behavior and your hate of correction, you're, you're forfeiting a blessing, improvement in maybe something you do, maybe something you do for God. Maybe your character, maybe you're in need of a rescue. And so why it's silly to say no and get all bent out of shape is because it's for you when it's done right, when it's valid and done in the right way, of course. And so, yeah, so, uh, so, so godly people, they're godly, so he doesn't have to worry about that. And so, yeah, um, King David said this about correction. And uh, perhaps it's his teachable quality. Teachable. Are you teachable? His teachableness made him great. He said, let the godly strike me. It'll be kindness. If they correct me, it'll be soothing medicine. May I never refuse it, O Lord. That's beautiful. And so Luke tells us what's going on. What is missing in his preaching? Well... We don't know for sure, but uh, I really like this understanding here. The hint is he's only focused on John the Baptist's ministry. What was John the Baptist's ministry about? Repent of your sins, stir you up to conviction, get you to trust in Messiah, period. That's the gospel according to John. You're dead in your sins. God's coming in judgment. You better turn, trust in Jesus, and be saved, period. Now, now we're getting it. So he's one of those salvation message pastors only, who every week, it's a salvation message. So he's super good at stirring up conviction, pointing out all the ways we need to repent, and getting us to trust and believe in the one who died for all of those sins, Jesus, so that we'll be saved. And then he gives an altar call. But it's every Sunday, the same theme. So Aquila says, hey, listen, love, oh, you're, you, I love how you use all of your training. You're so eloquent. You teach about Jesus like, wow, every Sunday I want to get saved over and over again. But bro, that's the problem, is, is that all I get is salvation. I got saved. And then his wife says, now what? because the Holy Spirit raises us to new life, right? So what's lacking is the resurrection. You get us, you're really super good at getting us to the cross. We're all at the cross. Every week we get to the cross accurately, perfect, check all the boxes. But there's a Christian life to live. There's false doctrine to avoid. There's living for treasures in heaven. There's denying self. There's... um, spiritual warfare. There's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole world of Christian living 
that we're longing to hear about. And a light goes on, bing. A light goes on, and he's grateful. We need exhortation about the Christian life. So beautiful. How do we know things went well? Well, let's finish up with the last two verses here. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's where Corinth is. The brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. So he's got a good relationship with everybody. He, he didn't get his feelings hurt. He, there wasn't a falling out or we'd be reading about it. You know, When he arrived, he was a great help. Not a hindrance. He wasn't a salvation-only, repentance-only preacher. He was now the whole counsel of God kind of preacher, helping those uh, who had by grace believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was was the Messiah. Now, that's his forte. He's not going to leave that. But he is going to be more open to talking when he's talking to Christians about Christian living and the resurrected life. So after the powwow, there's no pushback, there's no hurt feelings, no defensive behavior. There's healthy uh, ministry and healthy relationships. He's a big help to everybody. And and uh, we close out with this, and I love it. Uh, when he wants to go to Corinth, the pastors or the brothers, right, and the church at large said, we want to write some letters of recommendation because everybody loves you and we've been so blessed by you. See, no, none of this relational fallout or hurt feelings. So instead of saying in the letter, watch out for this guy, smarter than a whip, but a big baby, you know, (laughs) whatever you do, (laughs) don't try to give him any advice. He comes all undone, you know. Nope, didn't say that, you know. Instead it said, hey, Calvary Chapel Corinth, hey, We're sending you an awesome dude. He knows his stuff, the Bible, inside and out. And he's a fantastic preacher. What a blessing he's going to be. And by the way, he's humble and teachable too. Let's pray. Father God, just a few verses and so much truth. God, you just stepped on all of our toes for 45 minutes and mine included. So God, we're just going to take a moment to to reflect and say, Lord, we want to be better at discerning your will, trusting you. And we want to be more teachable and humble. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.